日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Welcome back to the Samurai Archives Podcast. This is Chris, and today we welcome back philosopher Jesse Workman to talk about differing perceptions of reality. So, what does that mean? Glad you asked. Now, we understand self sacrifice, you know, dying for ideals, God or country, but do we really understand the ritual suicide,、uh, seppuku, of the samurai? Even the word suicide has purely negative connotations in English. I mean, there are pretty much no cases where killing yourself is laudable.、Uh, well, unless it's to blow up a nuclear device to stop a world ending meteor from crashing into the earth, I suppose. But again, that's self sacrifice. Seppuku is strictly killing yourself for what we have to be honest in saying are pretty much alien reasons. Another example of differing perceptions of reality would be the magic gods and monsters that people 500,000. Or more years ago, dealt with on a day to day basis. To us, it's all fantasy and mythology, but to them, it was their day to day reality. So, basically, they lived in a fantasy novel from our point of view. You know, a world of magic, gods, and monsters. They were basically living in Game of Thrones. So, I guess the、uh, point of this episode is to say that、uh, you know, people 500 years ago weren't just a more ignorant version of us. They were basically living in a completely different reality. I basically came to this conclusion through some discussions that Jesse and I had been having, and、uh, this pretty much is his cup of tea as a philosopher. This is pretty much his specialty, so it only seemed fitting to bring him onto the podcast to talk about it. So, without further ado, here's the podcast. And today we have with us the rogue philosopher Jesse Workman. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me here. Although it's, it's ironic, I guess I'm called the rogue philosopher because I've become a philosopher that's highly critical of my own discipline. And I'm, I'm delighted to be back on the podcast and would ask your indulgence that, that you tolerate my raving. I, I guarantee you, I do know what I'm talking about. Aside, aside from the aside from affiliation the of the Catholic Pope. Right. I <laughs> totally got that wrong, and I can explain why. Because I am not. A historian of church history, although I have been interested in the Jesuit order because I'm interested in mysticism, I was told somewhere, and I don't know where I heard it from, spuriously, obviously, that Radzinger, known as Benedict XVI, was, I don't know, in the, was in the conservative, and that he was a Jesuit, and that Francis was a Franciscan or something, which was completely wrong. Francis, Pope Francis now is a Jesuit、uh, and a liberal, a liberal pope, perhaps one of the more liberal popes we've, we've had since Vatican II. So I, I didn't get that right. And, and the explanation is quite simple is that I'm really not a,、uh, a historian of the Christian church or of the, the Catholic church specifically. I've had very general studies in theology. And Christian history, church history, but nothing, nothing to where I would know 
and 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 because I'd been told the Pope was was uh, uh, that Benedict was Jesuit, <laughs> I don't know where, and I trusted whoever that was, who was obviously quite wrong, uh, because I I don't know, I didn't know any better. I'd read Dominus Jesus, which is he wrote it as uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, and he talked about the Catholic Church's view on other religions, et cetera, et cetera. And I've read that through several times. And somewhere along the line between reading that very conservative document of church dogma and hearing that Benedict XVI was a, a Jesuit, it just it just stayed in my head and I never bothered to double check. So that's that's my error. But I, I can assure you, I really do know what I'm what I'm saying about a number of things to do with philosophy and religion. Well, outside of that, anyway. But, <laughs> Outside of that, yes. But um, yeah. So for anyone who is new to the podcast, uh, the last time uh, Jesse was on the podcast, he he made a faux pas and and got the affiliation of the, the Pope wrong. But okay, I think that's enough uh, contrition for the for today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there won't be any more. <laughs> so okay. So and and again, that, that's also a reference to our prior podcast episode. But so going forward, just so everyone understands. What do you study? Because I, I think I've mentioned it before, but every time I, you know, every time I think about it, all I can come up with is Han Solo's famous line from Star Wars talking about uh, hokey. What is it? Uh, hokey religions and ancient weapons. <laughs> so, That's what? What? Close f- for the record, what is it that you're okay. studying? For the record, I I am attending the DU University of Denver slash Iliff School of Theology joint doctoral program, which is a a single doctoral program co-administered by two separate universities. The one of them being the University of Denver, the other being the Methodist Seminary, the Isle of School of Theology in Denver. And between the two schools, I both have studied religion, theology, religious studies, and philosophy. There are three or four different tracks that you can take in the program one of them for ministry, one of them for religious and social change. You can get your MDiv, your doctorate in theology, in seminary studies. I'm getting my doctorate in philosophy, cultural theory, and theology in that order. So that means a lot of philosophy, a moderate amount of cultural postmodern theory, and a small dose of theology in general terms. Even though the the track, the career track, is called theology, philosophy, and cultural theory, so they they reverse everything. But this means that my studies have to do with a lot of postmodern theory and any number of of philosophers of the continental tradition. That is the European, the French, and German uh, philosophers from say the early nineteen hundreds to to late 80s early 90s maybe i'm not as acquainted with the cutting edge of modern thought yet but i'm pretty well acquainted with the continental thinkers people like jacques derrida who i know a little about emmanuel levinas who i know considerably more about martin heidegger maurice merleau ponty i have some familiarity with husserl and his phenomenology there's a number of germans whose work i have not studied that were directly influenced by Husserl and Heidegger, but I've studied nearly all of the French thinkers who were influenced by Husserl and Heidegger's different phenomenological interpretations. But that also means that I, I'm more of a, 
I understand more modern theoretical, postmodern literary thought, etc. Although I've also studied the Neoplatonists, Plotinus. Uh, I've studied Islam. I had a few classes in Islam. And I have studied Jewish Neoplatonism because I wanted to study mysticism. Uh, but I didn't realize this school lacks uh, studies in that field. So I had to kind of make do. Okay, so we've talked about what you've basically been studying, and I know one key thing that you're studying is phenomenology yes. and uh, hermeneutics. And mm-hmm. these are the two things that I think we're probably going to need to talk about or, or which will be used for this podcast to kind of right. tackle the core of what we're trying to get at. And I think before we get started, um, based on a conversation that we've had, we've actually had a few conversations in the past about this, but I think the key point that we'll try to make today and see if that we can actually explain it to a, a, the extent that people actually grasp it, because it's kind of a weird It's hard concept, to grasp. But the mm-hmm. concept that uh, when you look at anyone, but let's look at Japan specifically, uh, let's say in the 16th century, they weren't just people who didn't quite know as much as us. They were actually living in a different reality. And that's something that needs to be kept in mind when you're when you're looking at history. You don't want to overlay your own beliefs or your own ideology over what they're doing. You don't want to say, oh, they're, they're like us, but just a little more ignorant, and right. try to explain the way they see the world through... If you do that, then you're trying to explain the way they saw the world through how you currently see the world, or how we, as contemporary human or modern humans, see the world. We can't and, help but do that. Right, and we, so I we think that's... bring in the, our own understanding of the world, and we say, well, those poor buggers, they didn't know about germs, they didn't know about the earth being round, you know, but we totally end up and it's subconscious it's un, it's it's involuntary we don't we don't it's not a maliciously intended thing but we interpret their writings their history through our understanding of of the world missing yeah. entirely what theirs is and on the surface i think everyone understands that at a at a sort of topical surface level but it's but not actually, the deeper it's, implications yeah it's because and and i'm sure we'll get into this and we will get into this but um when you're looking at it, I think there, there's a few things that I find uh, interesting is, is phenomenology, which is, is, I guess, experience. And then there's hermeneutics, which hermeneutics, is sort of yeah. how, how you interpret things, which I guess specifically how you interpret writings or religious writings. But looking at these two things, now if you could kind of explain what they are, and then how it could they could be used to kind of either understand people of the past or how to keep yourself aware of your own weird, your own biases in trying to understand the past. I'm not sure the tool, sure. How, in other words, how would you use it as, as a tool? How would a historian use these as a tool? Well, just to start off with, I, I think if you're really aware of the time that you're living in, and I'm a historian and I'm looking back at this, phenomenology and hermeneutics, understanding those two uh, poles, those two paradigms, would allow you to try to separate out yourself from the material that you're reading, to be self-conscious and to prevent you from inadvertently misinterpreting what you're reading. Uh, because phenomenology, I'm putting this very loosely and very vaguely, is evaluating an experience and describing it. And there are any number of, of terms that have to do with it. It's very arcane. The 
really the only important term that I would use in this conversation is intentionality. And now we think, well, intentionality, right? What does that mean? Well, it means I intend to go get a gallon of ice cream or something. That's my plan, my intent. And that is not what it means in phenomenology. What intentionality means in phenomenology is when you are conscious of anything ever, you are conscious of something, always. Okay, so if you're doing a phenomenological analysis of my experiencing of this table, this, okay, then I am able to consciously be aware of my awareness of the table. My intentional relationship with the table is that it is the object about which I'm thinking at the moment. And phenomenology allows you to evaluate that. It's like taking a step backwards and being able to see yourself, watch yourself, think yourself thinking. Hermeneutics is an exceptionally complicated word that put very, very simply, it began with a theologian named Schleiermacher. Basically, it means that there's a reader, there's an author, and there's a work that's had has been written or read. Now, the author wrote a given work. Let's say Augustine's Confessions. Okay, just you know, even though I just got through saying I don't know theology, uh, Augustine's Confessions. Let's just say, for example, he wrote it in the fourth, the fifth century. Okay, I would be reading it in the 21st. I would be reading it from my standpoint as a secular human being. I would completely misinterpret or misread. When he's saying statements about his experiences of God, his theology, his feelings of, of how he has sinned and how he wants to expiate his sins, I'm not going to get it the way he meant it. Because I don't have in my reality... I have a concept of crime, and I have a concept of, oh, I don't want to hurt people. I feel badly, but I don't truly have a concept of sin where, where you've committed an act that cuts you out from the face of God, you know, like a rotten piece of an apple. The, the severity when you have sinned, we just don't, most of us don't understand what that really means. And so hermeneutics means the reader and the work, the reader brings his or her interpretations into the work and reinterprets the work in the light of their experiences. So there's like a, a, an interplay and exchange between the reader and the, the one doing the, re- and the, and the work that's being read and the interpretations thereof. So the interpretations of a given work change. If we're reading something from history five, six hundred years back, we're not reading it the way they intended it when they wrote it, nor can we really entirely guess or reconstruct what they intended when they wrote it, because we're us. And we can't escape being who we are. You can't you can't really step outside of yourself and 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 look from a neutral perspective. So hermeneutics simply recognizes that neutrality we we can we can only claim neutrality with the most cautious of assertions. I'm sorry I've went on so long. No, that's 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 really interesting. 
And I think uh, I think that's actually the 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 concept is is a useful one when looking at history. It's just a matter of because I'm not sure. Well, is that any different from historiography, and or how does that supplement historiography? It supplements historiography because it highlights the self-conscious stance of the reader. So it really, it really is saying you, 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 you open up a book and you're reading it from who you are, from your perspective. Historiographical analysis uh, obviously is the history of the historical discipline. And so you study the history of changing interpretations of scholarship, of changing, uh, of changing uh, emphasis in by different historians, how they interacted. It's sort of interesting because history isn't just back there. It isn't. It isn't solid, right? It, it isn't. It isn't concrete. We we don't just go back and say, "Well, that happened. That's history." We have hugely variant and equally correct interpretations of what happened back there it's malleable and so historiography would 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 demonstrate for you just how subject to change interpreting those documents is we do have the real documents people's reminiscences their letters uh the recollections of a given event in history that's permanent but the way we interpret it and the way that how we what we tell ourselves it meant means to us in today that will change from generation to generation and hence the the emphasis what is emphasized in the history will also change from generation to generation i'm not i'm not a historian but even i'm aware of you know different trends in history where maybe 50, 60 years ago, you'd, you'd have the concept of the great leader. And these leaders are acting against this vast backdrop of the world stage and how events triangulate on a single person's late night anxiety ridden decision. Whereas now it's not so much from the top down any longer. Scholars are, are more for various reasons, some of them good, some of them ridiculous are more interested in studying the common person and those people's voices who have been silenced throughout history. For example, women in the Western uh, frontier. Okay. Or trying to do a more accurate history of, of, of slavery where, where you're trying to save the voices that have been traditionally silenced by historians. So historiography looks at trends and tendencies such as those so that you aren't just expert in your particular field of history, but you're skilled in the history of the development of your discipline as a discipline. And so hermeneutics would be another tool in your, in your toolkit to help you better interpret what documents you're interacting with as a modern human being. Okay, so that's how a historian could look at it. Now, what if I was just a regular person who likes reading books on history? What what would some basic, what what's a what are some basic ideas or useful concepts that I might want to keep in mind? You would really have trouble, I, I think, trying trying to put yourself in there. We can't help ourselves. 
we would need to keep in mind that everything that we know hasn't happened yet. I mean, I'm, I'm able to do it sometimes if I'm reading about, say, World War II or something like that. What we think is a foregone conclusion, we think they also saw coming. How could they not? It was a foregone conclusion. And we need to remind ourselves, no, no, it, it was absolutely open and subject to chaos and to change. And so as we're studying various histories, those people didn't know that Tokugawa Ieyasu, for example, would become the shogun. It was never a foregone conclusion in their minds, as it is for us. We can't help it. We look back, we know the history, we know how the battles turned out. It wasn't for them. They are not subjects that have experienced the history that we know when, from their perspective. And, and it sounds so simple. It's really not. But if you, if you look at a, a historical document, keeping that in mind, it will give you a fresher perspective on what you're reading if you want to understand what they experienced. So we look at Oda Nobunaga, for example, and the Battle of Okehazama, where he was outnumbered, you know, 10 to 1, 20 to 1, whatever, some insane amount, and his sneak attack on Imagawa Yoshimoto. And, you know, for us, we, we know not only was that the, the end result as he won, but he went on to basically start unifying the entire country. Now, we know this because of hindsight, but for him, that was a, not only was that an extreme gamble, but... He wasn't even in a position to even grasp the concept of him starting to unify the country. I don't. I couldn't imagine that would have even been in his thoughts at that point. He was still just a, a country, you know, a small-time country warlord. <laughs> so, you know, for us, everything seems like a foregone conclusion. Well, you know, of course, he, he gambled and won at the Battle of Okazama, and then he just moved forward from there. But, you know, every single day he was making little decisions that could get him killed or... or Right. lose him a battle or what have you. So even though everything seems to fall into place nicely, oh, you have Oda Nobunaga, and then Hideyoshi came up, and then after him, Tokugawa Ieyasu becomes shogun, unifies the country under his rule, blah, blah, blah. None of that, none of it was a foregone conclusion at the time. None. And, and you know, it's it's easy to kind of look past that when you're, yeah, when ima- you're imagine, history. Yeah, yeah, imagine being one of those guys on the, the outnumbering force. And we look back going, wow, they must have really been stupid and incompetent, you know, didn't they, they, they lost. They, they yeah, didn't Imagawa know. Yoshimoto was, was lazily allowing his troops right. to drink and whatever, whatever. Uh, but yeah, you've got 20,000 men. You, you yeah. outnumber them 10, 20 to one. Yeah. You're not It's worried. impossible. Yeah. And in any, in any other context, he would have been fine, but just that one, the one bad luck or the one, that one sort of miraculous moment where 1000 men or however many beat 20,000. Yeah. And in history, I, I find myself, you, you can't be judgmental. Well, how, how could they be so stupid? You know, we do it all the time. They're though. not. <laughs> they're not. Yeah, we do. But they're not stupid. They're no more or less stupid than we. They didn't know. What looks to us, well, how could it? It's so obvious. How could they not see it coming? Because it wasn't obvious. That's the first answer. And we're, we're forcing our correct view well, though correct is subject to argument and interpretation, over the events that we're reading about that they experienced. And we're forgetting that they had no way of knowing. They didn't. That nothing that we see, recognize as trends was ever obvious at the time. 
You know, actually, I, I think uh, it, interesting comparison or, or interesting thing to bring up would be uh, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. And I don't know ah. if you've read that, but... I've, I've not. I've, I've read a little bit of it. I've seen the movie. I, I know the basic story. I saw the movie. Come on. So, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Crime it's and Punishment, awesome. I think, Can't is... Can't tell difference between all names. <laughs> well, <laughs> God, yeah, that's annoying. Everyone, they have different names for everyone. But um, so in Crime and Punishment, I think if anyone interested in this kind of concept should really read Crime and Punishment because it, it my interpretation of it, you know, uh, obviously up for debate was kind of the idea that, well, if someone is destined to be great or destined to be powerful or what have you, whatever, that, no matter what they do, it's going to lead to that. And and uh, that's that's kind of the theme of Crime and Punishment. And, and actually, the theme is, uh, no, that's actually not the case. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we kind of look at history in the same idea, like, well, Nobunaga was destined to rule Japan. Of course he was not destined to do anything. It was... Not it was skill, intelligence, but also luck and everything else. It was, uh, you know, there's, there's, I, I guess there's a whole other philosophical debate about destiny and free will, which we don't need to right. get into. But I think generally speaking, if he didn't know, then we can't claim that he had a destiny because... Well, that's not to say the man wasn't arrogant. He probably thought, I'm destined to rule. Ah. Well, you I know. mean, at that point, if when he's, you know, in, yeah. his, in his 30s, when he's doing a, a night raid sneak attack on a force right. 20 times his size. <laughs> I, I, right. don't, I don't think he had planned all the way to the point where he is marching on Kyoto no, six year, or eight no. years later. It's highly but, doubtful, highly right. unlikely. Now, so I think at this point of the podcast, I think now that we've kind of laid the foundation for what the goal is uh, of the podcast, I think, you know, um, I mean, we've established that uh, you have to be careful of how you interpret historical events, historical documents, you know, without sort of letting your own modern sort of ideas get in the way and, and or, or looking at them as, as sort of more ignorant versions of ourselves because it's not yeah. really that simple. But I think at this point, we should get into the fun stuff, which ah. I would say is illustrating how people experienced reality in vastly different ways. I mean, yes. we look at a, we look at again, and I think it's just, it's natural. And I think it's the sort of the default way of looking at things. And, and I think most people are not conscious of it, but we kind of, like we've just said, you look at a historical event or you look at historical people in a particular situation as slightly more ignorant versions of ourselves. They're basically the same as us. They just didn't have the same knowledge base as we do. Yeah. And I, I think that's very wrong because, and I think okay. you, you agree because I do. It, it's not that they were more ignorant versions of us. It's that they were experiencing reality in a wildly different way than we experience our reality. And I would say, and we've talked about this off air in the past, but mm. you, you could also, depending on the situation, the place, the time, what they're doing, you could even say that they're, they're, living, they're, they're living a fantasy novel. From, from right. what our point of view would be the content of a fantasy novel is mm -hmm. what they're actually living and experiencing in their day-to-day -day life. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that they have particular beliefs, they have a particular either superstitions or religions or just understandings of the world that are wildly different than the way we experience it or understand it, but yeah. for them it's real. I mean, yep. you've got things like magic, and it's like, oh, well, they believed in magic, maybe they believed in magic, but it, it never worked, and, you know, our, our view <laughs> of, the way we look at it is like, oh, yeah, they were, they were superstitious and believed in magic, the end. Oh, no, for them, the magic is real. Yep. So, for them, they're living in a world of magic. Mm -hmm. 
The way uh, we live in a world of science. Exactly. And so, I mean, I think, you know, bringing up examples, one that we talked about, one that you brought up and I thought was a brilliant uh, idea to really illustrate how vastly different people experience reality. Uh, and uh, that is uh, Cotton Mather, 17th century Salem witch trials. And his the way he experiences reality, and you, you actually kind of enlighten me on him, that he's a lot more intelligent than I would have expected. But tell okay. the listeners about Cotton Mather and how he saw the world. Well, the thing we have to realize about him is his father helped build Harvard. Okay, Harvard. <laughs> Cotton Mather knew like five languages fluently. Okay, he could walk into any university classroom and he'd be like, it'd be like Albert Einstein in a kindergarten class teaching them, you know, about dropping things, dropping little balls and picking them up, right? He was a, an incredibly brilliant man. And it's, it, it's exceptionally easy for us to write off that brilliance because what he did was so awful. And, and the reason why he helped do it was so awful, you know, these, these believing in witches. There's no such thing as witchcraft. Then they went and burned these people to death. For no reason, show trials, all that, the guy must have been really dogmatic and stupid. Well, he may have been dogmatic, but he was far from stupid. He could read biblical Hebrew fluently. He could translate the Bible himself if he'd wished. He knew all of these source documents. He knew Latin. He knew Greek. He had an intellect and a grasp of languages, the likes of which we can barely imagine today. And yet, here he was setting women on fire for, for being witches because for him, it never occurred to him. It never crossed his mind that witchcraft wasn't real, that Satan wasn't really out there in the forest around these little communities in New England, and that there wasn't a war between the literal kingdom of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of, of hell. That was real for him. That was as real for him as I, I'm a little older probably than many on the, uh, in the forums, but any of you that might be my age, you, you remember growing up in the Cold War, the, the, the last 10 years of the Cold War with America and Russia, the communist uh, evil empire. That's how real it was to him. Only it was thrones, dominions, principalities. This, this is a verse from, I think it's Ephesians, that talks about we're not fighting against enemies of flesh and blood. We're fighting against invisible thrones, dominions, principalities, etc. And it's very, very real for them. And for Cotton Mather. Exactly. So he, and they're living in a world where there's a fight between good and evil and there's, there, there are demons in the darkness and people are being possessed and there's, there's mm -hmm. dark sorcery about. And, and this is, mm. this isn't just like, oh, they believe, no, no, this is their reality. Yes, they're yeah. they're they're living the equivalent of what we would see as a a fiction novel. Yeah, they're the world they live in is a fiction novel. They're living in a world where all this is real, and mm -hmm. I think you you I mean we don't understand that without really. I, I think it's in other words, it's one of those concepts that are, is kind of obvious, but if you've never thought of it, you completely miss it. I want to suggest a thought experiment that may or may not be helpful. First, I'm going to ask the question, did gravity exist before Newton talked about the theory of gravity? 
if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, does it make a sound? <laughs> no, there really is a reason why I'm asking this because nobody knew what gravity was. And so we say, well, Newton discovered gravity. No, he didn't. If you asked any dock worker in ninth century England, they know if you drop stuff, it's going to fall. These people understood how to sail, how to, how to fire projectile weapons. No, they were very well acquainted with the force that we now call gravity, but it wasn't named gravity. And so that concept wasn't part of their reality. It didn't exist. They thought those stars and planets up there in the sky are being moved around by the spheres, are being moved by invisible intelligences. But they knew, they knew everything that we know today about gravity, except that they misattribute the sources of, of, of these things. They, they wouldn't have named it gravity. They would have thought it was something to do with nature or invisible entities, especially on the, the, the solar system, the more cosmic sort of motions of the heavenly bodies. And for them, in, in medieval Europe, they were still dealing with the remnants of the, the Ptolemaic system, the ancient Greek, the ancient Roman cosmology, which talked about ascending through levels of, of the planets and the levels of intelligences until you reach heaven, something called fire, the sphere, the outer rim of the sphere, whatever that means. So, so tr try to imagine before gravity before Newton. That might help clear the slate for us so that we can approach the topic again as, as if we're approaching it from a, a naive and unique standpoint. I mean, we can make fun of, of, their, of their medicine that they had. I don't know a lot about Chinese medicine. But to them, it really did work. And it probably worked better because they believed it. And you have the placebo effect, which is a documented medical effect. And they didn't I, – I may need to be careful because obviously new religions came into different cultures, the spread of Buddhism throughout Eastern Asia, for instance. But I think religion for them – it was more the way we view our sciences today than the way we view our religions today. Because today we're largely consumers in a marketplace of ideas and we graft on whatever ideas make us feel better for them. That wasn't the case. It, it, it was their world for them. What we would call someone's worldview for them wasn't a worldview. It was the way it was the way it's always been. Yeah, there were no competing ideas, which I think is an no. important or interesting point where if, someone, uh, if someone chooses or is even brought up in a religion today, at some point, they're going to be given contrary evidence. And then yes. it's up to them to decide, do I want to ignore that evidence and stick with this? Or do I want to accept that evidence and switch to a different religion? Or do I want to throw away a religion altogether? They, mm -hmm. Like you said, a marketplace of ideas. Well, and it's interesting. I think her name is Megan, right? Is her name Megan Phelps, the daughter of the... The Phelps, that, that, that dreadful sect that hates soldiers and they, they hate homosexual, they hate everybody. She left the church. She evaluated her religion of hatred and from her own understanding of Christianity realized that she was wrong and has since walked out of the West, West Baptist, Westboro Baptist Church. Mm -hmm. And there's an interview with her on, uh, on um, Outlook for the BBC, 
an incredible interview. Uh, that would that suggests what I mean by a competing marketplace of ideas. There wouldn't have been that for you know Akazaku in, in his rice field in 16th century Japan. <laughs> Akazaku, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. Okay. Well. Yeah. The the. Uh, I mean. I think that's the important point to is to kind of circle back to is that the the millet grubbing dirt farmers of <laughs> medieval Japan had no competing ideas. Whatever their understanding of the universe and whatever their understanding of the gods, whatever that was, that wasn't them choosing one ideology over another. There were no other ideologies, so that was their reality. And I think that's an important point to make. It's something that, again, can easily be overlooked by us in this information age that we're, we're in right now. Yeah, and the, the, the saturation. We live in an age of saturation. And, and really, truthfully, most people pick the belief system that they have according, be it whatever it might be, even atheism, it's, it's what makes people feel good. It's not, the, at the core of it, oh, how do I say this? Because some of them might be strong believers, what we would call devout. But at the core of it somewhere, most people have made an informed choice because they like what they hear. And they'll say something maybe like, well, it just, it fit with me. It's the way I've always seen things, but now it's been put into words for me and it makes more sense to me now. It's what makes them feel good. It's not their, their reality. It's, it's the, the interpretation of reality that so-and-so has found that makes them feel warm and fuzzy. Uh, whereas for many people in history, maybe even in pioneer America, certainly in, in puritanical America, they didn't necessarily flee England, right? They fled England to practice their religion. It wasn't because they were trying to choose in the marketplace of religious ideas. It's because that's how they knew the world was. And these other people were persecuting them. And so they left England because they didn't want to die. Mainly it's not, it's not, I, I, I think we'd have a hard time grasping. And that's not to say that there weren't, religious conversions, that there weren't people leaving their religions, that there weren't uh, new religions that would come in. But it was a much more concrete. Right. And I think uh, people also forget, and this is just to sort of illustrate the point that we're kind of talking about, is there were there were gods before Christianity. Mm-hmm. And before Christianity ever happened, modern people may have set this aside or forget or don't think about it, but there were there were gods, you know, the, the Greek pantheon of gods, the Roman gods. These weren't just uh, like, oh, you know, these weren't, this wasn't mythology to them. This is no. mythology to us. Yeah. To them, that was their reality. There were, you know, Athena and Zeus. That's That was their reality. Those were their gods, and that's what they dealt with on a day-to-day basis. So their understanding of the world came from that, and I don't believe that that was considered a mythology and these were just tales. That Those were their gods. And so, you know, when you you look at that, and then uh, there's a Sam Harris has a podcast. He's he's an author, and uh, he's he's out there. Uh, I guess kind of a philosopher. He's sort of hard to pin down, but he has an interesting idea that I I, I'm, I can only paraphrase because I, I don't remember it specifically. But he said something along the lines of uh, the mythology section of the bookstore is a graveyard of dead gods, just as powerful, omnipotent, and all-knowing as yours. So. Mm. You know, yeah. which I found, I found really interesting. You don't you don't really think of it that way, but there there were you know every person throughout human history has had their their god, and then now you know nowadays and and everyone thinks that they're right. So it's sort of an interesting way to look at things. They you know that to them 
their reality was as solid as our reality is. As solid, uh, the, uh, they knew it. And and now Zeus is just, you know, like a kind of a joke, you know. Well, and they, they're gods. Yeah, and their gods weren't just creatures that looked down on them from Mount Olympus. They believed in their gods because their concept of emotion and the personality was different from ours. When they felt anger, that would be Ares, the spirit of Ares possessing them because they, their personality type, they were, they were open to the world. Whereas we are Cartesian. We believe the mind and body are separate, even the most secular of us. We believe that there's this object called the body, this grubby object, and the mind drives it around. Uh, they didn't have that in in ancient Greece in particular, or, or maybe 16th century Japan for that matter. They didn't have an idea that there's you, there's your body, and there's up there, or there's in in the dirt. All these things would have been a lot more. There would have the boundaries between you, your world, and the world of of the heavens would have been a lot, a lot more permeable. And even if you go back to pre-Descartes, it is true that people believed in the soul. And you die and your soul ascends and blah, blah, blah. But it took René Descartes to say it so specifically that now we're all Cartesians. We're unconscious Cartesians. It never occurs to anybody to question the mind-body split. And whereas in, with my studies and my doctoral dissertation, I'm reaching the point of, of casting a lot of that aside for me, that phenomenology speaks of you are always already in the world, experiencing it. And as such, you can evaluate your experiences and describe them more objectively. It's the interpretations that you need to cast aside, i.e. the Cartesian interpretation of mind-body dualism the mind-body problem there is no mind-body there is no dualism there is no problem and so similarly we should look at our histories the same way and and we need to remember too in in feudal japan they didn't have descartes they 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 had confucius they had the Tao, they had buddha and when buddha talked about the skandhas and what makes up a personality, all of these things are, are malleable, they're illusion, and they can be disassembled. And when you disassemble everything, you've got nothing left. There's no, there's no personality. There's no, well, there's me, a little homunculus, driving <laughs> around this, this, this mech, this organic <laughs> mech, right? Like in Mech Warrior. They didn't have that at all. They, they had Buddha. They had the impermanence of everything. So even their reincarnation, it's not how we understand reincarnation because we'll think, fine, I'll die. And then I'll come back alive. They didn't have that. They would have had, I, the, I will die. And then the fire will be rekindled exactly as it was with the same karma, the same influences on it from the previous lives that I've lived. But that thing being reassembled, that's not me coming back to life again, but it is a reincarnation, reincarnate, not, not 
the homunculus being put into a new body to drive around, right? You know, you, you, you're playing your video game and you're dead. So you reset and you're you again, only you're back alive. That's not it at all. Not even close. That's interesting. So the, the concept of reincarnation isn't, oh, I die and then I'm reborn again. It's, no, it's, no. Uh, it's I'm dead, but my, my karma lives on somewhere else or something like that. Yes, and my karma reconstructs an entity that looks in a lot of ways like me. But there's no connection between those two things. It really is, it's really cosmic on a level I don't think we can truly grasp because we're all... You know, without meaning to be, we're Cartesians and we're Shirley MacLaine. So you think, well, there's this this body, it goes out on a silver cord and it goes into the ether. And when I'm reborn again, they'll I'll have my memories for a few years, but all I can say is wah, wah. <laughs> and then they wipe out my memory, but I'm still me, right? They did not have that in Asian culture. That is never what they meant by reincarnation. Never. But... We don't have this concept in the West. When we die, none of us think we're going to die because there's this, this thing, this homunculus that's driving around this body, right? And, and I'm me. Of course, there has to be life after death because I'm me. This thing will survive. It's separate from the body. When the body dies, it goes on. For, I mean, aside from the fact that I don't think that's really what happens when you die, I'm I'm increasingly convinced everything just kind of goes black. But be that as it may, I could be wrong. Or you have a massive DMT trip, so you might as well have life after death. Um, but for them, you would wake up. It would be like waking from a dream, and you'd be reborn. We don't have this concept in the West to the way that they did. They wouldn't have believed necessarily in the afterlife, although I guess in the pure land, and the Tibetan, they did. But their afterlife is, the purpose of it is different from ours because they want to escape the wheel of samsara. They don't want to be reborn again. They don't want to come back. Yeah, so I guess in, in Northern Buddhism, you might have had a concept of some, some element of a concept of a body being, a soul being reborn in a higher or lower level, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. But for us, death, whether we like to admit it or not, we feel like it's the end. You're born once, and either you go to Christ's eternal embrace, or you go, and you're done for, and there's nothing. But for them, that's not the case. They had a totally different structure of, of, of life and death and the interplay. What does it mean? What is the existential meaning of, of death? So, you know, bringing up death here, um, mm. and also combining that with our sort of discussion about how people just understand reality in completely different ways. I was thinking yep. about uh, seppuku, or uh, <laughs> the the English version, harakiri, or, uh, <laughs> ritual suicide. And, uh, you know, we, we look at it from our point of view, again, of uh, like, oh, that's just kind of something they, they did. And we don't really, we don't really, I guess, question it or, or look to understand the experience. But, you know, there's a, there's a couple things here. First off, can we really, you know, from, from our point of view as, well, for us as Americans or, you know, any people listening right now, whatever country you're from, can we really know what it was like for the person ordered to or, or choosing to make, commit seppuku to walk to the room and kneel down and pick up the knife? Can we, can we really understand what that was like? 
we can understand it from our point of view. Like, oh, I bet they were scared. And, yeah. oh, uh, I bet they felt a lot of fear and, and, oh, and blah, blah, blah. But, well, that's that's kind of us overlaying our feelings and our our understanding of the world uh, over what they're doing. People do this a lot, too, with, with, with like, medieval combat or ancient combat. Right, right. Where, like, oh, everyone was terrified and it sucked. Well, yeah, but... At the same time, though, they had a different understanding of it than us. But I don't want to get into that yeah. because that's kind of well, a different and, and, and discussion. We, but we kind of find it repellent, don't we? You know, how could they be so, we would say, insane? He's going to drive the knife and cut out his own guts. Right. And then, after they spill out on the floor, he'll get his head chopped off. We, that's repulsive to us because, because for us, suicide is wrong. Because you, you live only once and then you go to your reward whatever it is blackness or heaven or hell right and you know i want to the the one thing here that I, I think is important to talk about is uh i'm uh i think I, I i don't know if i've mentioned on the podcast before i may have but i'm I'm currently working on a second uh advanced degree in uh clinical psychology of course uh you know suicide among other things is, is a big part of clinical psychology because you don't want people to do it because it's bad and yeah. uh so <laughs> you know Psychologist uh, Thomas Joyner came up with this theory uh, maybe about 10 years ago called the uh, Interpersonal Psychological Theory of Suicidal Behavior. And his theory works well with our psychology, but I don't think it would make any sense on their psychology in the 16th century in or 17th century in regards to, you know, ritual suicide, seppuku, where the theory basically goes, it's, it's a pretty simple theory, pretty rational, um, basically... There's an interplay of essentially three different things that result in suicide. First one is perceived burdensomeness, which basically, of course, means like, oh, I'm a burden on everyone. You know, I'm worthless. I'm a burden on everyone. I don't need. I shouldn't be here. I, everyone would be better off if I wasn't here. They'll be happy when I'm dead. Right. And then the second one is uh, low belongingness, uh, which is basically social isolation. You're like you're you're alone. You have no friends. You know, whatever. You can't connect with people. You're not getting any. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And then, uh, okay, so then you have, you know, basically those two things work together to give you the sort of the thoughts of suicide. And then, of course, if you're considering it, you need the ability to actually go through with it. And that's that's called acquired ability to enact lethal self-injury. Now, basically, without the ability to enact self-injury, you can't commit suicide no matter how bad you want to. And then, of course, things like previous suicide attempts. Sort of, basically, what this talks about is uh, you 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 eventually numb yourself to the idea of doing grievous bodily injury. So, and that can either be done by you can have that happen with uh, various injuries, like bad injuries to yourself. Uh, you can have it by observing grievous injuries, uh, traumatic events, and uh, special, particularly combat and warfare. So. These base, and then these all three work together to give you the suicidal thoughts paired with the ability to actually act on it, and then you kill yourself. So, and uh, there's you know there's empirical evidence developing. It's it's a theory, but it's a pretty reasonable theory. Now, so psychologically, this fits well with our reality. This fits well with how we fit into our reality because suicide, you, because suicide is bad because it's and because we have we have something called a personality that has to be emotionally balanced. And have these elements about them, a healthy person, quote unquote, needs friends, affiliations, social belonging, feeling of self-worth, etc. 
Right. And also, uh, you know, of course, the, the taboo of, of suicidal behavior. So paired together, you have society, you, uh, religion probably, you know, obviously goes, fits in there. At least the remnants of it. Yeah. And, and then the idea that uh, we're, we're all responsible for, you know, as a society, we're kind of responsible for, I guess, keeping people from doing it, keeping people from acting on it. So now that fits well with our reality, but it wouldn't even make sense in a medieval Japanese reality, the way that they view the world, that wouldn't make sense to them. Not that, I'm sure, suicidal, actual suicide, that, that type of suicide probably happened, but there's also the addition of seppuku, where you, uh, you, you're doing it, and it's actually not a bad thing. In, in fact, doing it, uh, accomplishing it is actually a very desirable thing. So it, it's actually interesting that we don't have mm. we. That's not even within our concept of reality. I suppose, like not at all. You know, uh, what, what's the term they use? Going out on your shield, or, or what have you? But I mean, we all understand in uh, in movies. You know, we understand the guy that goes out on goes out guns blazing. You know, in mm-hmm. in a Quentin Tarantino movie or what have you. We all we all understand the concept of the you know. Fighting to the last breath and and uh, going out on the shield and and going down guns blazing. So we all we understand that concept, but suicide is obviously a, a different situation. Even the word suicide is such a such a negative connotation. There's there's mm-hmm. nothing positive about that word whatsoever. Nothing. Self murder, isn't it? Suicide. <laughs> basically, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. yeah. Kind of what I wanted to say is basically, you know, we 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 we. Uh, maybe on a superficial way, kind of get the idea of like killing yourself is an honorable thing. We don't we don't understand it in practice, but we do understand the basic idea of like the hero going out guns blazing. Yeah, sacrificing himself to save his comrades. He loves them and loves the the cause that he's dying for more than his own life. So we do revere that. But nobody goes into the military going, "I fully intend to sacrifice myself." You know, they talk about being prepared to do the ultimate sacrifice, hoping that it never, <laughs> hopefully it never happens. All right. So anyway, if you don't really think about it in that sort of broader view, it doesn't, you don't really get it. You don't really get what's going on. But if you look at, I think if you look at it from that sort of broader view, it illustrates how, how that's a really alien concept to us because it doesn't fit in our understanding of reality you wouldn't no one would would be like okay i mean anytime anyone kills himself in this society no matter how rational under the circumstances it's always it's always considered either giving up or oh they must have had some issue some meant some they must have had some issue you know even when people with terminal illnesses will drink the poison there's still something in us that recoils even though they're doing what else can they do yeah, I, I'm for it. I'm for. I don't know how I feel because I'd rather people were getting better palliative care and were being treated better by our medical system. But in principle, I'm not opposed to that. If your quality of life is gone, and it's going to be gone until you're finally gone the rest of the way, you might as well go to sleep. Yeah, although that's that's a little aside the, but <laughs> a little beside the point, but. Um... Not really, though. We we recoil at that. Even something as rational and humane as assisted suicide, right? And that's we still the, look at with a ugh, exactly. You know? And that's that's exactly the point that I think needs to be made is that our entire existence and our entire understanding of reality is is that not only is it bad, but there is no rational justification for it. Maybe beyond uh, your you know incurable cancer. 
and and terrible pain. But even then, even then, there's still some like psychological barrier. Like it's 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 understandable, but it's still bad. And the whole mm-hmm. point that I'm trying to make here by kind of illustrating that is that they didn't see it that way. The the medieval Japanese didn't see it that way. Their un, their their cons their their approach to reality was different. Their their sort of their acceptance of reality or their understanding of reality is, yeah. is different in that in in a core fundamental way in that there are acceptable and honorable mm. and laudable uh suicides and i think ta- and i think that's something worthy of illustration because were, were there any source of... documents at the time that you could draw from oh i'm sure there was i don't have anything like that on me i didn't oh. i didn't look deep enough into it there's an there oh. actually there's actually a book uh, by, I believe it's Andrew Rankin, called Seppuku, A History of Samurai Suicide. Huh. And uh, I, I haven't read the book, but I am optimistic that he, he talks about this. And so I would recommend anyone interested in the subject to read it. Not that I've read it and can recommend it because it's a good book, although I, I'm confident that it is. But um, just because this, this, if anyone interested in the subject, I would recommend that they read that book. And I'm th- I think in the future we'll probably have a uh, an episode on seppuku. That it only makes sense, but yeah, I, I think you know pair this with uh, just our own personal views of suicide, and it really you you really get a feeling for. And I'm really only trying to illustrate this not because like wow, look at this wacky idea that they had, look at this wacky belief that they had. I'm not I'm not looking at it that way. I'm looking at it to try to illustrate something. This is something that they did and that they believe and they uh, they understood in a way that we don't and probably can't because it's something yeah. so ingrained it seems it seems so human to be to abhor suicide and yet in certain circumstances they didn't so yeah. and 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 uh i wouldn't say that they were i don't i wouldn't say that it was a it wasn't commonplace yeah. it wasn't like every day well, let's go kill ourselves today we're we're yeah. uh, we want to impress each other yeah it wasn't you know? nearly as common as as you know people who haven't don't really know anything about japanese history seem to think right but it happened a lot. Uh, and, you know, like I think uh, Forrest and I talked about in a previous podcast, it, you know, many times it was you draw the knife and you touch yourself with it and then they've already cut your head off to preserve your honor or what have you. So uh. it wasn't like this was happening all the time, but there were absolutely in- instances where they stabbed the knife and they dragged it across <laughs> the stomach. And at the very end, they they pulled it up <laughs> and then their guts spilled onto the floor in front of them though that that type of situation was definitely definitely happened so and, and I, I think it's important to talk about the, the the idea that or or to use this as a way to illustrate that their understanding of reality their their core human understanding of reality was different completely completely we, and we don't today we don't have you know even though we can send people in you know to the to the the west bank or to hezbollah or whatever and uh and interview failed suicide bombers and, and so we can kind of get what were they thinking when were they going to when they were going to do it how did they feel what you know even that isn't the same thing even that because they're doing that out of unimaginable despair and brainwashing and and we just can't there there's no equivalent today that we can grasp onto to help us better understand their mindset in 16th century Japan, the, how, how life was treated and valued, how it was seen against, against death, 
you know, their view of death is different from, from ours in, in certain respects. And their different view of duty, I, I think, too. All these things, there's like a, all these things must have a, an interplay. They must have a, a, I don't know, they're all factors that go into them having a dramatically different view towards ritualistic suicide or even suicide in general than we have. Completely, completely different. Yeah, so I guess uh, to, to wrap it up then, hopefully, I mean, the point of the, 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 the podcast was to kind of get people to th think about the concept of how people experience reality, you know, wildly differently, depending on the time and place. And simply to make one think, we're not even attempting to necessarily convince you that our interpretation of the differences between their realm and ours is, is, aren't necessarily correct, but, but that there are differences. You know, again, that's pretty simply stated that they're not just people, they're not just us, but slightly more ignorant. They're, they actually have a completely different understanding of reality, and they're, they're experiencing the reality different, differently, and they're living in a different reality. Again, you know, going back to Cotton Mather, they're, they're mm -hmm. actually living in what we would consider a fantasy novel, and for them, it's, right. it is real, whereas mm -hmm. for us, it's all fantasy. And uh, I think that's an interesting way to look at it. It's an interesting, interesting tack to take, I think, when you're looking at history. Yeah, and we reproach them, well, how could they accept that? How stupid. They never had the option. They were born into that world. They were the same way we are born into our language. They were born into theirs and into their world and its concepts. And it never would have occurred except to the most wildly nonconformist, the same as it is for us. We don't question our reality and our interpretation, except among very rare nonconformist types who are probably born to be nonconformist. No more did it occur to them than it does to us. So hopefully the, uh, this, this uh, sort of philosophical discussion, uh, my, my plan with the podcast, in addition to looking at history, is also kind of taking an interdisciplinary approach and sort of using other disciplines to, to give ideas for looking at history. And so hopefully this was a, a useful podcast for people, uh, for our listeners. Thanks for letting me be a part of that. It was really enjoyable. And I, I'm glad to be able to apply the knowledge that I have that's pretty arcane and, and pretty pretty useless, really, truthfully, uh, in, in a useful way that, that will help people have a genuine uh, – that will have a, genuinely gain something from these thought experiments. Yes. All right. Well, I guess, uh, right. I guess that's it. So, Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, and that's it for another episode of the Samurai Archives podcast. I hope you found it as interesting as I did. We'll be back in hopefully about two weeks, maybe a little more. But in the meantime, head over to SamuraiPodcast.com or iTunes to get all of the back episodes. And hey, you can head over to SamuraiPodcast.com to help support the podcast. We have links on every episode to the t-shirt shop or Amazon. So pick up some samurai-related t-shirts, coffee mugs, posters, calendars, all sorts of stuff. And if you use our Amazon link, you'll support the podcast, kick us back a little bit of change, and it doesn't cost you anything. It really helps out the podcast because it can get a little expensive. But hey, we do this for love, not money, right? Also, you can find all the links to books and articles that are mentioned in all of our podcasts at samuraipodcast.com. Granted, a lot of the articles are hidden behind the JSTOR paywall, and there's really nothing we can do about that. But uh, as for the books, you can pick them up from the Samurai Archives store, which is powered by Amazon. 
And so all those purchases kick a little bit back to us to help support the podcast. And again, doesn't cost you anything extra. And if you want to contact us, give us feedback, or suggest episode ideas, you can send a message to samuraipodcast at gmail.com, or you can find us at the forums, forums.samurai-archives.com, or on Twitter at Samurai Archives, or on Reddit at r slash Samurai Archives. We're pretty easy to get a hold of, so feel free to come with the questions. All right, and with that... Here ends another episode of the Samurai Archives podcast. Catch you next time.